Before I go any further, though, let me do a quick personal introduction. I got a picture of my family right there. There it is. So I've got four kids and one wife, which I'm told is the right way to do it. So I think I'm doing all right. And uh, we live in Minnesota, but we travel all over. And I, even though my wife is not here this morning, I feel like I always have to give her a shout out because we live a crazy missional life. And my wife is a rock that holds our family together. She is strong. And if it wasn't for her, I would not be here. So I'm going to give her a shout out so you can clap for her and I'll tell her you did that. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, what is with the name Steiger? That's kind of weird. What does that mean? Like, what is that about? And so let me give you a little context. So Steiger is a Dutch word that refers to the location where my parents started a ministry in Amsterdam. So I was born in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, and my, my, we lived, our family lived in a small apartment on the fourth floor um, in the center of the city. And my parents were American missionaries that were there, and they had a heart to reach young people of the city. Now, in a city like Amsterdam, they see these big, beautiful cathedrals that are largely dead and empty on Sunday. In many cases, they're literal museums. And that's people's view of God. Just a dead, empty, outdated tradition of the past, not relevant to my life. And so my, my parents had an old burden to reach people of the city. And so they started off, my dad took a small group of people and they would go into the bars and the clubs late at night and they would go and they would befriend people and build relationships and share Jesus with them in a natural way. And then they would write down the names of everyone that they met and they would go out into the forest and they would pray all night, God, give us a breakthrough in this city. It's so hard. We need, a, we need a way to communicate your love and the truth, a way that connects. Lord, give us a breakthrough in this city. And they were praying and asking God. And after a season of prayer and doing this, my dad, who had spent a lot of times at the, at the bars and the nightclubs, and he saw the influence of the music scene, he felt like God was saying, I want you to start a band. And to use the stage and to use the music as a way to communicate the gospel message in these secular places. And this was in the 1980s, and it was the height of the punk rock movement. That was like the social music scene at the time, and Amsterdam was like this major hub for it. And so my dad said, okay, I'll start a punk band in Amsterdam, as you do, right? And so he starts this band, he names it No Longer Music, and he uses, he uses the, the band to communicate Jesus. And right from the beginning, God's favor and anointing was on it. Suddenly, they're getting invitations to play at bars and clubs and festivals all over the city. And right from the beginning, the purpose of the band was to lift up the message of the cross outside the church. And that's because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, that he preached Christ and him crucified so that people would not be convinced by human wisdom, but by God's power. And the message of the cross is where God's power is. And when you lift it up, it, you experience his power. And that's what people of Amsterdam and what people today need. They don't need more words. They need God's power. And so that's why they lifted up the message of the cross, and they did it in all these environments. And suddenly, all these people are coming to Jesus. And they're like, what do we do with them all? And so what they did is they started a Bible study on a big red boat behind the central train station. Got a picture of it right here. Take a look. There it is in the top left corner. It was docked on a pier on a river behind the central train station. 
And so there you see my family there, uh, my parents and my brother and I and the band in the bottom right corner. Now the address of this boat was Steiger 14. And so Steiger means pier. And so it was literally the, the address. And they named their Bible study Steiger 14 and eventually it became a church. And it was reaching hundreds and hundreds of young people of Amsterdam that normally, that previously would want nothing to do with Christianity. And it was this dynamic ministry in, in Amsterdam. And then eventually what happened is this Steiger movement started to spread outside of Amsterdam. So my dad started to get opportunities to go to different places like communist Poland and the Soviet Union. And they would go to these places and they would work with Christians and they saw people reached in these environments and, and Christians inspired. And pretty soon people began to identify with this movement called Steiger. And they said, we're part of Steiger. We're, we're Steiger Poland. We're Steiger Germany. And they were referring to the church back in Amsterdam. So it was never like this strategic plan. It was a move of God. And so next thing you know, there's this missions movement called Steiger that came out of that. And that, that was the environment that I got to grow up in. As a kid, my dad would take me and my brother and he would take us on tour with him with the band. And we'd be in some nightclub somewhere in Eastern Europe and some point during the concert, he would bring us up on stage and he would say, these are my sons. I love them. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them. Everything that I have is theirs. If someone tried to hurt them, I would protect them with my life. And then he would say, and that's how God feels about you. And he would equate a father's love for his children with God's love for them. And in that environment, I saw tough people with tears in their eyes praying to receive Jesus. And when you experience something like that as a kid, I mean, I'm telling you, it ruins you. It ruins you in the best possible way. Because you see that following Jesus is not just this nice religious activity, but that he's real. And that he has the power to transform lives. And so that was the privileged environment that I got to grow up in. And in the years since then, I, I had my own journey, but eventually I joined the mission of Steiger. And today I'm called to lead this mission. And the one thing I've seen from all my years of ministry is that the God we serve is real and he has the power to transform lives. And I, yeah, come on. And I believe that if there was ever a time or a generation that needs to experience not just talk, but God's power, it's today. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to just read about God's power in the Bible. I need to experience it in my own life. It needs to be real. And I believe that God has a plan for each one of us in this room, not just to survive, not just to live for ourselves, but to use the little vapor of time that we have on this planet, to use the little vapor of, this, of time we have to make an eternal difference in the world, for God to demonstrate his power through you to a broken and hurt world. I believe that's a calling for each and one of us. So what I want to talk about this morning is what will it take to experience God's power like that out in the world? How do we experience that? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah. So if you want to pull out your Bible, go to the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to start at, we're going to look at chapter one, and we're going to look at the first four verses. So I'll give you a few seconds there, and let me read to you the first four verses of chapter one 
the book of Nehemiah. All right. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the months of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. All right, so let's just talk about the context here for a second. So Nehemiah, he is part of a group of Jewish exiles in the Persian Empire, right? So he, he had been forcibly removed and he's part of the Persian Empire, but he actually finds himself in a pretty good spot, right? He's, he's got some favor, and so he's got this job as a cupbearer to a king. So it, it's a pretty good gig for a guy that's been exiled to a different place, and it's pretty comfortable, right? And he's, he can, he's living pretty well for a guy that's been exiled. And while he's there, he has some friends and family from, from Jerusalem come and visit him. And they, they tell him about the situation that's going on there, and they tell him that the city is in ruins, that the walls have been broken, that the people are in disgrace. You know, and it's interesting because Nehemiah, like I said, he had it pretty good and he could have said something like, oh man, that's too bad. And then kind of moved on with his life. But instead, he, he, God opens his eyes to the reality of the world and he couldn't be passive any longer. And so the first thing we learn from the scripture is that like Nehemiah, we need God to open our eyes to the state of the world. In the busyness of our lives, right? We're so busy. We've got so many demands, so many distractions, so many things coming at us. It's so easy to get numb to the brokenness all around us, right? It's so easy. Even people in our own family, we grow apathetic to it. It's because there's just so many things coming at us. And so we need our eyes opened, we need our eyes open to the reality, and it's not far away. It's right here. Even in our own country, we are experiencing a profound cultural shift. We've moved from this nominal Christian nation in which most people identified as a Christian, had a positive view of the church. They saw the Bible as a good thing and, and really influenced our culture to now a post-Christian culture in which many people are walking away from the church, and not only do they, you know, have, the, the, we see this great increase, the fastest growing religious group in our country is the religiously unaffiliated, the nuns. And it's, it's not just that people no longer affiliate with Christianity, their attitude towards it is changing as well. So what once was predominantly positive, now is increasingly apathetic at best. I really don't care, I don't even think about it, to outright hostile at worst. And I think we all experience and know people in our life that fit somewhere in that, that category, and that's what we're dealing with in our country. Now, this shift that we're experiencing has been coming for a while, and, and the worldview that, in, that, that it's built on is, literally goes back hundreds of years from the Enlightenment and philosophers, but what's really brought it to the mainstream is the emergence of something called the global youth culture. 
So the global youth culture, think youth and young adults all over the world that are influenced by similar voices. So they're playing the same video games, they're listening to the same music, following the same social media influencers, and because of that, they're more connected and more similar than ever before. And they're similar on kind of superficial stuff like music and fashion trends, but they're also similar on deeper things like worldview, morality, and lifestyle. And so you have this new global youth culture. So let me illustrate this way. Take a look at these guys on the screen here. And based on how they look, how they're dressed, and kind of just anything you could get from the picture, where do you think they're from? Keep it up on the screen for a second. Now, take a, just think about it. Now, pick a country, or let's make it easier. Pick a continent in your mind where you think these guys are from. Now, would it surprise you if I told you that they were from Lebanon in the heart of the Middle East? I mean, these guys look like they could be at a coffee shop down the road, right? Like, it's a perfect example of the global youth culture. I mean, it's really interesting, actually. We have a Steiger team in Beirut, Lebanon, and that's able to reach young Muslims in an entirely different way because of the emergence of the global youth culture. So it's having a global effect, not just here. So, so what is the global youth culture influenced by? They're influenced by, of course, pop culture, entertainment industry. That's not just entertaining, it's shaping a worldview. You've got internet stars on TikTok and YouTube that are having massive audiences. You've got video games, which is bigger than Hollywood. Study that came out that said the average 21-year-old male has spent 10,000 hours playing video games, which, by the way, is the same amount of time that you need to master a fine art, right? So this is a place, like an, a place where people find community and a sense of accomplishment, huge influence. And then lastly is pornography, right? Devastating, so common, so pervasive, not even something to be ashamed of anymore, and it's, it's everywhere. And it's, it's rewiring our brains and distorting our view on love and sexuality and relationships, and all of these things come to shape a global culture. Now, the religion of the global youth culture is something called secular humanism. So what that means basically is that God has been replaced, man is at the center, and there's no outside authority that can tell me what to do. And it's the era of my truth and identity, purpose, and morality is self-constructed. I define those things. And if you pay attention, you see this message everywhere. Take a look at this. This is an Instagram post by a guy called Jay Shetty, a popular kind of pop psychologist, self-help guru, works with the beautiful people. And he says, the rules are fake, do what you want, listen to how you feel, and make decisions that honor your soul. That's secular humanism. All right, here's another one. This is a poster at a Starbucks, and it says, don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are, quoting Lady Gaga. That is secular humanism. And it sounds so good. It sounds so liberating. But the truth is, it's, it's the consequences of this worldview are devastating. It's like poison wrapped in bubblegum. You know, it looks so sweet and appealing, but the consequences are devastating because if you are the source of truth, you're going to end up confused. If there are no rules, you're going to end up broken. Right? If, if there is nothing, no anchor 
that holds you in the storm, you're going to be anxious. You're going to be depressed. And if it's all about you, you're going to be lonely. This is the felt need, the cry of a generation, a generation that is confused, sexually broken, lonely, and anxious. These are universal felt needs. And here's the sad thing of, of, of it all. They're not walking into the church because they believe it's irrelevant to their life. And that should break our heart. A while back, a non-Christian friend of mine from high school posted on social media that his son was about the same age as my oldest son had been diagnosed with brain cancer. And when I saw that post, man, it, it rocked me. Like I couldn't imagine what this guy was going through. I couldn't imagine the fear and, and just the, the, st- the things that he was dealing with, the anger of the injustice that a little boy like this would get a disease like that. I just couldn't imagine what he was going through. And then I started to look at some of the comments on his posts. And he was getting stuff like this. Positive vibes. Sending healing vibes his way. Sending you all positive vibrations and much love. And then eventually he responded and he said, thank you everyone for the supportive words and concern and positive energy you have expressed for my son Peter. I couldn't help but think about how hopeless that all sounded. Because in the secular humanist worldview, there is no transcendent hope, just positive vibrations. And it's devastating. Like I said, this is a culture that is overwhelmed with loneliness, anxiety, and depression, and they're not coming to the church. And this is not a distant problem. This is personal. These are our friends. These are our sons and daughters. These are people all around us. And here's the, here's the saddest part of all. They're, we have the answer that they're looking for, but they're not coming. Right? We have the answer because Jesus brings truth to the confused He brings healing to the sexually broken. He brings the ultimate relationship with the creator and the church. And he brings peace that transcends understanding. We have the ultimate answers to the cry of a generation, but they're not coming to us. So we got to go to them. And we need our hearts to be broken for that to happen. When we hear something like this, our response should be like that of Nehemiah in verse 4 when he said, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Because you see, the extent to which your heart is broken is the extent to which you're going to do something about it. When your heart is broken, you're going to get uncomfortable. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to lay down your needs and your desires to go after the, the lost. When your heart is broken. Now here's the thing. Having a broken heart, it's not like a workout program, right? It's not like, okay... Starting Monday, I'm going to start loving people, right? Like, that's, that's not how it works. We can't change our heart. Only God can do that. But what we can do is we can repent. And we can say, God, my heart is cold. I don't care for people like I should. I've even grown numb to people in my own family, and it's not right. And I'm sorry. Would you forgive me, and would you... Give me your heart. Would you break my heart for what breaks yours? You start to pray that prayer, and it's dangerous. Because God gives you his heart. And you start to see people. I mean, really see people. 
and he begins to break your heart, and you can't remain inactive anymore. You can't remain passive anymore. When your heart is broken, you've got to do something about it. You've got to act. And so we need to ask God to awaken us from our apathy. And then we need to recognize that we're not just dealing with a human problem. We're dealing with a spiritual problem. We're in a war. We're in a battle. Not against people but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, like it says in Ephesians 6. And we're dealing with a generation that's been deceived. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So this isn't first and foremost about logic or persuasion or let's make a really cool program that draws people in. We're dealing with a spiritual blindness. So it doesn't matter how many times I point at that wall. If you're blind, you can't see it. And so we need to recognize that we're dealing with a spiritual problem. We're dealing with a spiritual blindness. And so that's why, like Nehemiah, we need to pray like never before. Because we're in a spiritual battle. Nehemiah 1.4 goes on to say, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now some biblical scholars estimate that Nehemiah prayed and fasted for four months before he approached the king. Four months. So you got to ask yourself, why would Nehemiah pray and fast so long and with such intensity? Well, I think it's because when he, when God opened his eyes to the problem, he realized that he couldn't fix it on his own, that he didn't have enough, that he didn't have enough resources, influence, talents, whatever. He didn't have enough. And that's and that we need to recognize that truth for ourselves. And like Nehemiah, we need to recognize the mission that we are called to, that you are called to, is not hard, it's impossible. No human strategy, no resources, nothing that I possess is enough. My only hope is if I get on my knees and cry out to the God of the universe, the one that holds it all together with his power, the God of the impossible, and I say, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on my family. Have mercy on our country. Because we don't have enough. We need a supernatural move of God. We need something beyond ourselves. I don't know about you, but I look around, all the brokenness, and I can be overwhelmed. We don't need more talk. We need a supernatural move of God. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. We don't need more talk. We need power. Because the problem is too big for me. But here's the most beautiful thing about the God we serve. Though he doesn't need us, he chooses to use us. He chooses to demonstrate his power through us. Ordinary people like me and like you. He, he calls us to play a role where he can demonstrate his power through us so that he gets the glory and we do something that people go, that's not about him, that's something beyond him. And I, I want to know what that is. And that's what we need. And here's the thing. If you, got, if you ask God to open your eyes and to break your heart, and then you get on your knees and you start to pray desperately, he's going to speak to you. He's going to lead you. He's going to call you out. And so what it takes then is to the, the courage to say yes and to act. 
If you come to the Steiger International Training Center in Germany, where we, have, we run the Steiger Mission School and we gather young, young people from all over the world that come every year to be trained because they have a passion to reach the global youth culture. And it's a, it's a phenomenal school and maybe God is speaking to you and maybe you should come to the school. We, we have people come from all over the world. But if you go there, on the building, there's written on the wall, it says, God rewards those who seek him with a desperate heart. And it's a paraphrase of Hebrews 11.6. And first and foremost, it speaks to that idea that everything we do starts in desperate prayer. But I, th- I find this verse really interesting. Let me read it to you. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to, believe, to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And it's really interesting because the author of Hebrews is speaking to a Christian audience, but he says at this one point, anyone who comes to him, him being God, must believe that he exists. And it's like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm, why, I wouldn't go to God if I didn't believe that he exists. What, what's going on here? What is he trying to say? And I think the idea here is that it's easy to believe something intellectually, conceptually. But the real evidence of what I believe is how it impacts the way I live, how it impacts my actions. So let me give you an example. I I mentioned earlier, I I grew up in Amsterdam and we lived in a small apartment, fourth floor, right in the middle of the city. And we had a lot of interesting things that would happen on the streets below. Like for me, like the white noise that helped me fall asleep at night was like bottles breaking and people yelling. It was soothing for me, it was a weird childhood. And, and so one time, there was a group of soccer hooligans from a different, like a, 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 a soccer team that was from out of town that were in town, and they thought it would be fun to pick a fight with the local drug dealers on our street. And so right on our street below, there was a full-on, like, riot that broke out between these two groups. And it was like this intense fight where they're picking up, you know, bottles and bricks and chucking stuff at each other. I mean, you don't need TV when you got that kind of entertainment on the streets below, right? Like, so this is what's going on. We're watching this. And then all of a sudden, a single police officer shows up, gets out of his car, and jumps out of his car, and then starts to run right into the middle of the riot. And all he has is one of those, like, rubber batten things, And you got all these tough men fighting each other, and they stop, and they look at the police officer. They look at each other. They drop their weapons, and then they run down the street together, being chased by this single police officer. (laughs) And, like, the police officer's running, and then at some point he, like, realizes what he's doing, and he, like, pauses, and he kind of does, like, one of these, and gets in his car, and he's, like, calls backup or something. But for a moment, this police officer so believed in the authority and the power of the one that he represented that he was willing to run into a riot. That is what it means to believe that God exists. That I so believe in the authority and the power of the one that I represent that I will go wherever he asks me to go. That's what God is calling us. That's where the supernatural is. But to live that kind of life takes courage. And I love courage. Here's why I do. I love courage. Because courage does not mean fearless. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather a willingness to do the right thing despite the fears you feel. If you Google the, the, the definition of courage, it says the ability to do something that frightens you. Everyone, is, everyone faces fear. 
It's totally normal. Even the great apostle Paul who did, I mean, other than Jesus, he did more for, for, for the kingdom than anyone else. Amazing things, miracles, all sorts of incredible things. Churches planted all over the place. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I, Paul says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. The great apostle Paul was so afraid he was shaking. And this is really good news. Because that means that if you are afraid, you are in no way disqualified. Right? You're not disqualified if you're afraid. All it means is that you have to step through that fear. If you want to know the difference between why God uses some people and more than it seems to be than others, it's because some people, that doesn't mean they're fearless, but they step through those fears. They're willing to, to step through. They have the courage to step through that fear. Now, it can be all kinds of fear, right? It can be fear of, of failure, fear of looking stupid and hurting my reputation, being laughed at, fear of financial insecurity, all kinds of fears. But as followers of Jesus, we're going to have to step those fears, and we're going to have to take Holy Spirit-led risks. Risk is intrinsic to faith. You cannot have faith without risk. Where there's no risk, there's no faith. And where there's no faith, there's no power. And faith by definition means, I don't know what's going to happen. I could fail. I'm putting myself in a position where, God, I need you to move. Because I, I don't have it. I need you. And those are the moments when we get to experience God's supernatural power. So let me explain this in kind of a crazy way. So as I mentioned, one of the things we do in our mission is we use music and art to share Jesus in secular places. And for a while, I was touring with a band that was, doing, um, that was doing work in the Middle East. And one particular tour, we were touring in, in Turkey. And, and I love Turkey. Turkey is a beautiful place, and it's, uh, the people there are amazing, but it's hard. It's really hard because it's 99.9% you know, .9 Muslim, and people can be very uh, close to the gospel. And we were doing a series of concerts where we were using uh, music and theater and visual effects to tell the gospel story in a creative, modern way. And at one particular time, we showed up at a city where we we're going to do another concert. And when we got there, we found out that the concert that we were doing that night was being organized by the local city government, which was abnormal. And we're like, okay, this is interesting. And then we even got a police escort into the center of town. It's like, okay, this is kind of cool. And we got to the center of town. And it was like this big festival atmosphere, all this stuff going on and people around and a big stage. And I and it was like, okay, this is going to be awesome. And then on the stage, there was a banner with something written in Turkish. And so I, I went to our, one of our Turkish partners. I said, what, is, what does that banner say over there? And he looked at it. And then he got a concerned look on his face. And I was like, what? what is it? What does it say? And he said, oh, it says, uh, <clears throat> welcome to the Ramadan festival. Now, it was the opening first night of Ramadan, and the town was having a festival to celebrate, and we were the opening act. Like, that's not normal, <laughs> right? And so we were like, um, okay, what do we do? Because if, if you're ever going to offend and create a negative reaction, it's probably preaching Jesus at the Ramadan festival. And so I was like, okay, I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do. I'll go talk to our missionary partner. He's been working in Turkey for 30 years. This guy is the definition of a missionary. I mean, he's been to jail multiple times. I remember asking him, like, his name's Wilson. I'm like, Wilson, what's it like going to jail? And he's like, oh, it's awesome. I can catch up on reading. I mean, so like this dude is legit, right? Like if anyone knows what to do, this guy knows what to do. And so I went up to him. And I was like, Wilson, what do we do here? 
And he looks at me and goes, I, I got nothing. I was like, thanks, Wilson. And so, and so then we we're like, okay, we, got, we, need, we need some help here. And at that moment, uh, the guy who was organizing our tour, he, he was a Turkish guy who'd grown up in a Muslim home. And through some activities that we had done in the past, he'd come to know Jesus. And he loved Jesus so much, he wanted his people to know about it. So he organized this tour. But he came up to us because he felt a deep responsibility for our safety. And he said, man, I don't know. This is, this is, this is kind of crazy. Maybe you shouldn't say the name Jesus. Because our whole concert, which, which culminates in a modern crucifixion and resurrection, and ends with us saying, and his name is Jesus. And he said, well, maybe we shouldn't say that. Maybe we should just say God. You know, it, it's a less offensive. And he was just trying to protect us. He was feeling concerned. And so I was like, I, I don't know. I just, we just need to pray. And so we went for a walk and just we're asking the Lord for wisdom. God, why are we here? What are you trying to do? Why, why have you brought us here? And we were crying out to God. And as we were praying, someone came up to us and said, hey, I don't, I don't know if you heard, but the city we're in, it's about half a million people. Not a single church. Not a single church. And I felt this deep conviction from the Lord. If you don't tell them, who will? And I felt God say, I felt strong from the Lord, okay, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to preach the name of Jesus at the Ramadan festival. And just let me tell you this, as we started our concert, the fear never went away. We were doing our show, I was feeling so much fear, I was feeling sick to my stomach. But we went through the whole concert, came to the end, proclaimed the name of Jesus at the Ramadan festival. And all I can tell you, instead of people throwing rocks at us or charging us or booing us or whatever. We, people cheered and rushed our response table. We had over 100 people fill out the Bible correspondence course saying they wanted to know more about Jesus and to study the Bible with someone at the Ramadan festival. <laughs> Only God could do something like that. That wasn't us. That wasn't because we were special or did something right. It's because God moved in a supernatural way that we could not take credit for. That's the supernatural life that we need. Now, you might be listening to this Ramadan story and going, that's too much. Like, I could never do something like that. And certainly not everyone is called to quit their job, join a rock band, and tour the Middle East. Some of you maybe. <laughs> but not everyone. But every single one of us is called to be a radical follower of Jesus right where you are. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your background, your, your history, what you do, what your gifts are, doesn't matter. None of that matters. What God has called you to bring his love and to bring his power into the world, right where he's placed you. Every single one of us is called to that. So how do we get that? How do we do that? How do we get that kind of courage? Because here's the thing, here's the liberating thing. It's not about you, it's about him and what he wants to do through you. And so we get the courage, we find that courage as it's revealed in Acts 4, verse 13. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So where did their courage come from? Was it their education, their talent, their skills? No intimacy with Jesus. They had a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus, and their confidence came from their deep trust in Jesus and not themselves. 
It's a beautiful, liberating thing because the closer that I get to Jesus, the more I draw into him and his promises and who he is, the bigger he becomes and the smaller the world's obstacle comes become in comparison. And courage, here's the beautiful thing about courage. It's like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the more you use it, the stronger it goes. And courage is not about like these one big Ramadan moments. It's about a thousand yes moments, daily yes moments, where God speaks to you, he's, he, he, he prompts you and you say yes. And you make a lifestyle of saying yes to Jesus one step at a time, over and over, and you begin to build that muscle of courage. You begin to see God move in supernatural way, would build your faith further, and one day, you're standing in front of your own Ramadan moment where you see God move in a supernatural way which you cannot take credit for. And that's what this world needs. This world does not need more talk. This world needs God's supernatural power, and God desires to use you to demonstrate his power to the world. So here's what I want you to take away from this. Ask God to open your eyes to the state of the world, to really see what's going on, people close to you, people in this city, people in this country, to open your eyes to the reality and then to break your heart for what breaks his so that you cannot remain apathetic any longer, so that you can't remain passive any longer because your heart is broken and that brokenness drives you to your knees because you realize you don't got enough, that you're insufficient and that you need a supernatural work of God. That's the place to be. And then as you do that, as you get on your knees and you seek him desperately, he will call you. He will lead you. He will direct your path. And then the question is, are you going to say yes? That's the secret to the supernatural. I promise you, you follow that. And again, we won't do it perfectly. There's grace in the process. But as you walk this out, that's when we get to see the supernatural. And, and not only will God use you to transform lives of people out there, he'll, re, he'll reignite your own life. You'll see the power in your own faith. And so this is what we need. I promise you, you do it, you'll experience God's life-transforming power through you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for this church, for their heart, for the vision. Lord, we don't want to play church. We don't want to just do religious activities or talk. We need a real move of yours. We need something beyond ourselves, something that is so much more than what we could ever bring. And so, Lord, we offer ourselves. We ask you that you would open our eyes to truly see the brokenness all around us, to see the world as it is. And then, Lord, would you break our hearts? I'm sorry, Lord, for when my heart has been cold and apathetic and I don't care and it's not right, would you forgive me? Would you give me your heart, Lord? Break my heart for what breaks your heart, yours so that we can truly see people. And Lord, we need you because we're not enough. We don't have enough. We are insufficient. But Lord, our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in you because you are the creator of all things. You hold the universe together with your power and for you, nothing is impossible. And so, Lord, we cry out for a supernatural move of your Holy Spirit in and through us so that a hurting world can see that you are real and that you have the power to transform lives and that you will do something that we cannot take credit for. So, Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we pray that this would just be the beginning 
Show each of us what that next step is so that this isn't just a nice talk, but that it leads to action, Lord. We love you and we praise you and we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.